My name is Danny, and I'm glad to have you today here with, uh, with me. Today, we're going to talk about 10 reasons why people say Christianity is wrong, but I wanted to flip that. I was going to originally do this from an article that I had pulled up not too long ago uh, by a secular naturalist uh, or humanist, depending on where he falls. He didn't really explicitly say, but according to his answers to these 10 reasons why Christianity is wrong, I can only gather that he doesn't believe in God. So what I wanted to do was sort of talk about his points and what he had made as far as reasons go. What I would rather do is talk about why Christianity is right using some of these arguing points and uh, sort of flip it on its head. I'd rather talk about the positive and rather talk about why I believe Christianity is the right worldview rather than the wrong worldview. But these are sort of common, common talking points anyways for a lot of people who aren't believers that, that just sort of want to have reasons not to believe in God or for that matter, just believe that he doesn't exist and there's no real reason or logic to believing he does exist. So let's start with number one. Christianity is absurd, and what I want to say is Christianity is completely reasonable and appropriate. But I want to define absurd so you can get a real good sense because I think it's it's sort of an odd way to put this first uh, reason. Absurd means that it's something that is unreasonable, illogical, maybe even inappropriate or impossible to take seriously. And so with that in mind, I want to absolutely say it is reasonable, and it's definitely something we should take very seriously, especially when you read the Bible. There's there's a lot of supernatural things, and if you don't believe in the supernatural, then yeah, it's going to seem absurd to you. I would argue that the supernatural is a very real uh, um, occurrence or phenomenon in our lives, and because there's a lot of things that happen that we can't explain and that science definitely cannot explain if that's your go-to for all knowledge, just because something's absurd doesn't mean that it's not true. The second one is Jesus has not returned, and the way I look at it is, I agree, Jesus has not returned yet. And the statement is, Jesus has not returned, meaning that each generation has believed that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. And I, I can see that. I can. I even feel now that I think Jesus is coming back. All these things that are happening around us that we see that Revelation uh, prophesies about, we can point to some various things. And, and, and I think every generation, uh, there's been something to point to that people could say, well, oh, look, this has happened. This is, this is all lining up with what Revelation said. And there may be a little bit of a difference here, a little bit of a difference there. When you actually read the Bible in context, right, it's written for us, not to us. Don't just read a verse. When you actually read those in context, we find out real quickly that those verses do not mean what a lot of people like to try to make them mean. So the first one that uh, people use is 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Now, Matthew twenty six sixty four also says, Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then still Mark 13.30 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. If you look at the context before that, it's very clear that Jesus is talking about future things. That generation that starts to see these signs will not pass. So that's why he says this generation. He's not meaning the generation he's living in at that moment uh, and the people around him. And again, that if you just take this verse, yeah, it absolutely sounds like it. 
But we talk in this way even today sometimes when we start to apply even for like a group that we're talking about that we may include ourselves in that group, but maybe not during that lifetime. We will say we. Paul is talking about we being any Christians that are alive, all right, they're going to meet with the Lord. We may be gone, and, and he's not saying dogmatically that he doesn't believe it's his generation, but he is talking about future things when you read ahead in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The other verse that gets used sometimes, and I find this very interesting, is uh, Mark 9.1. And, and Mark 9.1 is also very similar to um, a verse of Matthew and Luke as well. And it says this, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now. Okay, so that sounds pretty, I'm pretty confident that Jesus is talking about those that were standing with him right then and there. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. So key words to understand is, first of all, he starts us with, I tell you the truth. So it's going to happen. This is a fact. This is something that is going to be an event. He also says some. Now, at this moment where he's at, he's talking to his disciples or his apostles that are standing near and around him. And he's talking. He says some of them, not all of them, some of them. And then that next statement, they will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Well, after every one of these verses, Mark 9, 1, the verse in Matthew and the verse in Luke, all of these, the transfiguration happens. And that's when Jesus is going, goes up to the mountaintop. He takes James, John, and Peter with him, which were three disciples, three apostles that were a lot of people consider his inner circle. And they were there with him. And they witnessed the uh, coming down of God and, and on, on the Jesus and his transfiguration where he took on this this heavenly look, okay? And that is that that is what he is saying right here. They will see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. And so they witnessed that. And it's very easy contextually to understand this because every single one of these verses, immediately following that, it talks about and six days later or and later, this uh, transfiguration event happened. So yeah, I agree. Jesus has not returned, um, but that's a, there's a yet after that. And and. It doesn't take a whole lot to dig into Scripture to know that whenever these verses that they try to use to say he he says he's going to return in this generation, and it clearly he didn't, you have to read the rest of the, the passage. You have to read all of it. All right, let's go on to number three. Number three is a little tricky because people will say God doesn't care. Now, they say that from very dis, different positions. So either God doesn't care because there's all this evil in the world, and he doesn't do anything about it. Or the God doesn't care because he's God and he doesn't have emotions. God does care. He absolutely cares. And that's why it's important to read the entire word of God. So, I, I you know, a lot of people bag on the Old Testament. They say, well, he, you know, God's different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. No, he's not. He's the same God. It's just we know of him in a different way because of the way he related to his people versus when he was in human form as Jesus with a, a different mission coming here for the salvation of, of his lost sheep, more or less. And so when we read in the Old Testament books like Judges, you read it and you're like, man, he, he did some, you know, he was pretty harsh on, on his own kids. And yeah, he was because his kids were extremely rebellious. He warned them generations ahead of generation, ahead of generation. He, he told them clearly what the expectations were. He was very clear and very upfront about what he expected out of his uh, out of his creation, out of those that he loved the most. There's many verses of him demonstrating that he has emotions, and these emotions that we know that we got from him. So he demonstrates anger. He demonstrates compassion. 
He demonstrates grief, love, hate, jealousy, joy. And with anger in Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven um, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Compassion in Psalm uh, 135.14, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. 1 John 4.8, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, we, we talk about love as an emotion, but it's also an action. All right, and that's very important to understand. Hate, Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. It's clearly that he says he hates unrighteousness, unholiness, and sin. Never says he hates his creation. He loves, it is all good. He said that at the very beginning. He never went back on that. Jealousy, Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He loves us with a passion and a fire. That's why he sent Jesus, who we see clearly wept, uh, had joy, uh, laughter. He, he lived a full human life in, with a divine spirit and in, in divine stature as well. Because we have emotions as existence, as, that's evidence for the existence of God as well. Because if God didn't have emotions and were created in his image, then we wouldn't have emotions either. Genesis one twenty seven and uh, the, the first part of verse 31 says this, So God created Human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And in 31a, then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. God does care. He cares He cares so much that he did what he did, knowing what was going to happen, and still yet sent his son to die for us. That's amazing. Some people bring up the fact that other religions, that there are so many other religions in the world today, that Christianity is just one amongst many and that because there's all these religions, all these various gods, and let me say little g, that that's evidence that Christianity is is not is not true. Um, it's one way to a mountaintop, and or in fact that God doesn't exist, and that religion is just man-made, right? Well, I won't disagree that some religion is man-made. That I will agree with. But we have to look at Christianity. If you look at the the doctrines of Christianity, the core doctrine of Christianity is is a unique, unlike any of the other religions. None of the other religions have this aspect. If you look at all the other religions, especially the major world religions, that would include Islam, that would include uh, Judaism, that would include Buddhism, Hinduism. All right, you look at all these, even even Catholicism. All of them are works based. All of them work on a sense that we're good enough to be able to work our way into God's good graces and into heaven. Now, there's in none of them is there any type of standard by what's enough, like how many works do I need to do? When it comes to Christianity, what sets it apart is so amazing is this idea of grace and saving grace at that. Grace is something that we have not earned Grace says, I'm not going to, I'm going to forgive your sin so you don't have to go to hell, but I'm also going to give you the gift of eternal life with me in heaven. Grace says, I'm going to move you beyond hell and I'm going to put you into heaven with me because you simply believed. You simply accepted that what I did for you was for you and that you also believe that you are sinful and you needed me to be that death, that sacrifice for you. And he took on that for us. He, um, he chose to be that person where no other figure in any other religion has ever done. 
Jesus, the only Savior that that says that claims to be God, that came down to die for us because we needed to be saved, and that He loved us so much that He not only died but He also rose again, and and with that, it separates Christianity completely from all the religions. So it's not a surprise that all these other religions that are man-made rose up to compete against the idea of Christianity. It makes complete sense. All these other religions would rise up over time to take that focus away from Christianity. If, if you want to say all roads lead to heaven, first of all, logically doesn't make sense. It's either all of them are wrong and there is no God, okay? Or one of them has to be right, but not all of them can be right because they're all clearly different. Next, we have uh, the claim that there, there is no soul. The soul designates personhood. And, and there was a saying that said, it, it isn't that you have a soul. It is you are a soul. And the Bible tells us that. It tells us in several verses that it talks to the soul of a human being rather than to the body. Because the body that we have here is going to go away. When we get caught up in heaven or when, when you know that second coming happens, we're going to, that, this flesh is going to be gone. And we're going to take on our heavenly bodies. When you say there is no soul... You take that away, and now what do you have? Do you have, some people say, well, you just have an emotionless, I would say yes, but what you really have is just a robot. So robots have flesh. I mean, flesh, right? They have a structure. They have a body to some degree, or it's just a shell, and there is no soul with that. So with there being no soul, it's just an inanimate object. The implications in my mind when you say there is no soul are much graver than to believe of having a soul and what that leads to because it goes to that idea, and we talked about this in the first episode, it goes to that idea that we're just cells upon cells upon cells that somehow lump themselves together. And I'm not even talking about the cells. I'm, I mean, even to create the cell to be operable, the stuff, the mechanisms, the, 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 the things that created the cell, the, you know, they, when they discovered DNA, discovered that all these intricate, and you can see them under a microscope now, these machines that have gears and all this, I mean, just insanely intellectually designed mechanisms, right, that have a purpose, that somehow all those little things that just create the DNA structure and create a cell just happen to come. I mean, it had to be chance upon chance for, for, for this to come together and then, you know, this to come together and all this to come together by chance, and then those three things come together to create something else by chance. It is it is impossible. I'll just say it. it's impossible. But that's what you're saying when you say there is no soul and you believe that there is nothing there to redeem us. And then when we die, we just go into ground. If we're just cells put together, that implies that we have no free will. That implies that we're just robots, that we're going to do what we're going to do. And our responses are going to be inborn and just set as a fight or flight response. Talked about this last episode. I always use this example. If we don't have souls, then murder is not murder anymore. It's killing just for the point to survive to the next day. Just like we don't put lions in jail. We don't put them on trial for killing, you know, a, a water buffalo. We don't do that with human beings that have no souls. We don't need a justice system. We don't need the police. We don't need any of that because if you have no soul, you're making your choices simply and merely to survive. So the next one is the second part 
or actually the first part of what I was talking about when, when I talked about God cares, right? Some people say that God does not care, which means he doesn't care because evil exists. Now, let's talk about that. First of all, I agree, evil exists. And because of the presence of evil, people will say that God doesn't exist. I say that's great evidence for God existing. Here's why. Evil exists. If evil exists, then that, that there has to be a good to oppose that evil. We see people do good things. Correct? Agree with me. We see people do good things. Because we see people do good things, then good things exist. We see things in nature. We look at the stars. We look at everything around us. We, we sit on the beach and we watch a sunset and we go, man, it's just good. Good to my soul, right? Look, I, I pulled in two things there. It's just good to me. And when we see somebody, you know, go and shoot up a mall, or we see somebody going and killing lots of people, or we see, we hear about human trafficking. Uh, we hear about these terrible things. We know evil exists. Okay, so... If those two things exist and God does not, and we do nothing but evolve to become better, why haven't we evolved away from evil? Some people say humans are good natured. I completely disagree with that statement. Nature is what we do inherently, supposedly. When, when you say something, that's the nature of that, then that is what they tend towards all the time. Being good natured means that you are going to do right. If you are good-natured, you have no reason to do wrong. You always want to do right. You're always thinking about doing right. Your nature is to do that. You lean towards doing all of that. God is good-natured. God's holy and righteous. He does nothing wrong. We are sin-natured. Now, we don't always do those things. Ha! Here's why. Because God's fingerprint is on his creation. He breaks that. Whereas the good-natured, there's no need for evil or evil should not exist at all. If everybody is good natured, we do good. There's no, there is no existence of evil. But if evil exists, we would say the logic is no good would exist, right? Yes, I agree. However, we do see good in our world. We don't have that same answer for seeing evil. So if we want to say we see evil in a good natured uh, situation, then we have to admit that there's something that's leading us towards that evil. There's something that's tempting us towards that. And then there would have to be something that is ruining that good nature in us, which means we would not be good natured. The fact that there is good in this world, whatever it is, beauty and good is because God's fingerprint is sort of like the signature of an artist is on his creation. It's on you. It's on me. You don't have to see it. You don't have to believe it. That's fine. But it's there. If you do good things, if you strive to want to do good things, it's there. You, you're able to do that because God exists in you and in this world. Now, when I say in you, that means that he created you and knows every fiber. He, he wove you together, all right? In that, you still have to come to know him in order to have your soul rebirthed and regenerated so that way you can be holy and righteous in his eyes because he is holy and righteous. When we see evil in our world, we have to understand that if we're never evolving away from it, then how do we change and fix that? How do we get better? Can we? Obviously, we can't. We've not been able to do it so far. Why do we think that's going to happen in another 50, 100,000 years from now? It's not. So we have to come to a conclusion that if we're not good-natured and we're sin-natured, then and there's nothing we need to do to fix that, then we need somebody to fix that for us. And again, the problem with evil is not... <laughs> is not that God doesn't exist and, and he just doesn't care about it. It's not that he doesn't do anything about it. He has done something about it. 
if he decided just to wipe out every evil thing, where does our free will come from? In order to wipe out all evil, he has to stop us from doing it, which means he has to change something in our minds and our hearts from doing anything wrong, anything selfish, prideful, egotistical, okay? Anything in that regard, he has to change that, which means he is over, he is taking away our agency in, in the little bit of sovereignty we have in our free will to make a choice, and he's imposing his sovereignty to a degree that says, I'm going to make you love me, or I'm going to make you not do bad things according to his standard. But God doesn't do that. Number one, he can't, because if he loves us, love requires there to be a choice. So there has to be a choice for us to be able to do good and to do bad. Adam had that choice. Satan had that choice. Free will exists. We see that every single day. Now, because free will exists, we have a choice, then what that tells us is, is we're going to choose wrong, or we're going to choose selfish, we're going to choose us, and we're going to continue to sin. And because we're going to continue to sin, sin, the wages of sin is death, right? And because of the wages of sin is death, then that gives us only one place to go because we're rebelling against God. We choose against God, which means God's going to say, okay, I love you so much. If you really want to be without me, this is a place. And in that place, there is no joy. There is no peace. There is no comfort. There is no love. All right. There's nothing but pain, torture, and, and just hopelessness, which to me is one of the worst things outside of even pain and torture, hopelessness. Evil does exist. It's evidence for God, and God loves us and cares for us so much that he gave his only son to die for us so that way we could be redeemed back to him and that our sins would be forgiven forevermore so we could spend time with him forever. I want to go on to the next one here, and this one's a little bit of a, it's a sort of a simple answer, and there, it's one that requires a lot of work from you, a lot of work from me. How about that? People say the Bible is inconsistent or lacks consistency. Read it from cover to cover. And if you read it from cover to cover, you'll hear consistently that God's redemption story is woven from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The Bible being inconsistent, that thought can only come from a place of um, ignorance simply because there's a lack of knowledge. That lack of knowledge has to do with a lack of reading, and you need to read the Bible to really get that one. So I'm going to lump these two together. The Gospels are history they're, they're witness accounts. They're, they're, they're accounts of the life of Jesus. So yes, they are a history of Jesus's life, but they're also reliable. But they don't have to be reliable because they have to be in chronological order or have the same story. There's a, a guy named J. Warner Wallace, former cold case detective and a very good one. And so as an atheist and a cold case detective, he was like, I want to disprove this. So I'm going to use my cold case detective skills and I'm going to, to um, look at the story of Jesus I'm going to look at his resurrection, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at these gospel accounts, and I'm going to take these gospels, and I'm going to lay them out. And I'm going to see that it, just like he would when he had witnesses to a, a, an accident or a crime, uh, especially one where he couldn't even always get to those witnesses because maybe the cold case was 30 years out. Um, Pat, you know, and, and, and so because it was 30 years out, some of the witnesses might be dead. So all he had was the, the, the verbal, the written testimonies that he could go on. And so he would look at that and try to pull from those testimonies. But one of the important things was, and something we do in law enforcement, when I was in law enforcement, if we had witnesses to a crime, we never put them together. Immediately, the first thing you do is separate them. And what you're hoping is that you separated them quick enough to where their stories most likely aren't going to seamlessly 
go together. Because if, if that happens, you can almost bet that they it's rehearsed and that they colluded together to come up with what they felt like was the best picture of, the, of what happened. But we get a bigger and better picture when we have vault, multiple perspectives of the crime, okay? So let's just say the crime of, of the cross, right? Uh, Jesus died on the cross, and that, that, that was a crime that we can see as we go through his trial because the trial was a farce in the first place. They didn't even abide by their own rules when they, when they put Jesus on trial. For instance, they did it at night when they were, even law said, never do a trial at night, okay? I could go in a bunch more, but we'll do that another time. But he pulled from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that these gospels are, are, you have the three that are similar, so we call those synoptic gospels. And then we have John's. And John's almost vastly different in how he approaches writing about Jesus, okay? And then you have variations on various things. You have certain accounts that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke uh, record that are slightly different. But none of them contradict each other, but people will say because they're slightly different, they contradict. You wouldn't do this when you're talking to witnesses in a crime scene. Stories don't have to be the same. We can get a good, accurate picture of an event, even if they are slightly different. When they contradict each other, that's obvious. But when they don't, and they just basically give facts, and those facts could be very similar or support each other, but we have this fuller picture, and we're going to get a better idea of what happened. And so, it's not a story that has to be necessarily chronological. There are certain events that happen at one point. And also, too, even if maybe they are chronological, what we only get is a three-year snapshot of Jesus' public ministry. And in that public ministry, we can't assume that when he did the Sermon on the Mount, that that's the only time he spoke on that topic or those subjects. He probably spoke because he every day he's out talking, every day he's out ministering, He's walking around from city to city to city. So what, what he said over here is a good chance he's going to say it again over here. We hear pastors do it today. Just because it doesn't say he repeated a sermon doesn't mean he didn't repeat a sermon. It's very possible. The omission of something doesn't mean it didn't happen or that we have to say that it happened only this way. We can't jump and make that leap. When we're looking at the reliability and understanding that this is the history, this is the story of Jesus. It doesn't mean that because some things are omitted here and some things are um, are spoken of here, or this is this order here. This happened. This event happened here, but then over here it happened after this section here. Doesn't mean that it it's not reliable. We don't treat anything else this way. Doesn't. Why would we treat the Bible this way? Well, largely because we don't want to give it power over us and what it speaks into our lives, and we don't want to be humbled and we don't want to be convicted of the sin in our life. That's why we treat the Bible differently. When you sit down and really dig into it, it's not that people are trying to mold and shape it, right? We don't do that with the truth. If the truth is there, we're pulling it out of the Scripture. We're, we're, there are certain things that Jesus talks about, Jesus says. There are certain things that the Gospel writers write that aren't to be taken literally. And so when you automatically assume a literal interpretation to everything you read, well, yeah, then you're, you're definitely already putting yourself in a position to go ahead and say, well, this is not reliable. But we don't do that with other writings. We don't do that with other pieces of ancient uh, literature. And especially with the New Testament, we have more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than we do for any other piece of writing, ancient writing in the history of the world. Even better than Shakespeare, which is much more recent than the, than the Gospels and much more recent than the New Testament. I think they said there are upwards of what, like 27,000 plus pieces of manuscript evidence Whereas the next best thing is the Iliad uh, written by um, Homer, 
which only has about 500, but yet people don't question its authenticity and its reliability. So if you can see how the double standard has been applied here is because it's, a, it's, a, it's the Bible and because it's Christian. You know, people don't give the Quran this, this same kind of scrutiny. People don't give the Book of Mormon the same kind of scrutiny. When the Book of Mormon, you, you, this, the whole story itself is almost has to be clearly made up because it talks about the United States and the Americas and Jesus showing up over here, and none of those people groups, none of those places have ever been discovered. Whereas yet one, sometime in, 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 in our past, it was believed that Jericho was a made-up city, but it was in our Bible. And so people are like, oh, Jericho, it's never been discovered. It's made up. So obviously that story's made up. The, the walls didn't come tumbling down. And then guess what? Archaeology finds Jericho. But did anybody apologize? No, nobody apologized about it. So yeah, I firmly believe that the reliability of the Gospels is true and that it is a history, not maybe chronological history, but it is a history of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I do want to pull this quote from that article of the gentleman who wrote uh, this. And this is what he said at the, at the conclusion of his article. He said, if you are a Christian and you are reading this, and then in parentheses he said, which I highly doubt, and if you cannot respond to each of these objections with evidence and coherent argumentation, as opposed to, the, uh, faith in the, as opposed to with faith and shouting, then you need to start shopping for a new religion. Here's my challenge to him, because a lot of his arguments weren't coherent and didn't have evidence. It's a, it is absurd. It absurd is it, it is absurd is a statement that's not coherent and it lacked tons of evidence. And so what he's asking from me is something he's not even willing to produce himself. I am more than willing to do it though. And, and you should be too, but you have to read God's word. You have to get into the, the scriptures. You got to study it. You can't just read it. And so when I look at this, I agree completely with what he's saying. You Christian follower, disciple of Christ, if that's what you call yourself, and if you, talk, if you call yourself a Christian, you are a disciple. That's what you're saying, just so you know. Your relationship is with God, and you have to, you have to understand this. Peter tells us this. And we have to be ready to give an account for our hope in Christ. Now, how we do that is it needs to be with grace. It needs to be with humility, right? It needs to be with wisdom and discernment. But when, when this writer here who's an atheist says, you know, if you're not going to have evidence, you're not going to have a coherent argument then you need to find a new religion. I agree with them. I agree with them wholeheartedly because if you don't desire to study and learn something that is so important to your life, that you say is so important to your life, that God, that Jesus literally died for you and saved you when he came back to life, but you're not willing to uh, put in the work, the time in the relationship with him by praying and studying and worshiping and fellowship and fasting and whatever else, then yes, you do need to find a new religion. I encourage you and I challenge you, put your work in, gain biblical knowledge, and let that knowledge transform your mind and renew your mind and then change your heart. That's what you need. Let's move on to it doesn't make sense. All right, we're here with uh, this meme that we've got. Uh, Josh pulled this up. In this age of information, if you're not an atheist, I sincerely hope you're either illiterate or seven years old. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so you know, this, this, is, this is the challenge that I have for you, but this has been a challenge for me, and this is why I'm doing this podcast. 
the general population of Christians that have not read their Bible, been Christians for 15, 20 years, and still have not read from cover to cover their Bible. And so when they get into a conversation that seems intellectual, when they get into a conversation with somebody else, an atheist, an agnostic, somebody that doesn't believe in Jesus, somebody that's not a Christian, they seem to check their brains at the door. Like, they walk in a room, and they say, hold up, wait a minute. They take the brains out, they set it on the shelf outside the room, and then they walk in thinking, I have to leave that there because whatever knowledge I have of God is not smart or intellectual. I've got to walk into this with what? And so they do. They walk into the they walk into a trap. Satan is is trying to get the body of Christ to think, you're just not smart. Like being a Christian is not an intellectual perspective. Like what you're what you're learning is just mumbo jumbo mush mush. It's the best way I can explain it. And and I tell you, I have studied other religions. I've been a Christian now since '94, and with that, I did not do a lot of studying. I was that mush mush Christian. When you start shouting out scriptures at people. And these people automatically are writing you off like, I don't, uh, the Bible is not relevant to me. It's not an authority. It's not, it's, it's not something that is reliable. I'm, I'm, I, you're just starting a, a circular conversation that's going to go nowhere because I'm not listening to you. And I, for the longest time, I was like, man, how do you talk to somebody like that? And I found out, you know, it just takes a little bit of common sense and reasoning in my head to sit there and look at situations and their questions and go, there's a lot of things here that can be explained logically, that will always lead us back to the Bible, but it gets them on that train first. And that's the whole point to our subtitle. When I talk to somebody, we start talking about something, and I'm not intending on leading them to the Lord or, or witnessing to them. We just get in some conversations. And when they start talking to me and they say something, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm going, mm, okay, should I say this? Because it's, it's something, it's a, the worldview they have which means they have an opinion on something through that worldview lens that they're looking through life. And I don't agree with them. And I'm like, ah, I don't see it that way. And then they'll look at me and I go, I don't see it that way because uh, I guess how I see things is different. I, I look at things through a Christian worldview. So that sort of tailors the way I see life and everything in this universe a certain way. And then they're like, you can see their wheels turning like, oh gosh, here we go. Another one of those guys. I'm like, and so I'll continue. I'll just say, it just, it just makes more sense to me, the Christian worldview. And that right there is where people go, huh? Like they do that whole puppy. Huh? And I've learned that that's a big thing with folks. And, and I, I've said this before. I'll say it time and time again. Not everything about God do I understand, but everything about God makes more sense. Because he's God, right? Because he's God, because he is outside of space, time, and matter, and he created it, and how the world began, and how he continues to work through through the timeline and everything, and how everything's going to come to the ultimate judgment and, and you know eternity with him. Like All that makes more sense to me out of life. It makes more sense out of evil and good. It makes sense out of morality. It makes sense out of um, why I think the way I do and why I look at life the way I do. It just makes a ton more sense. And then they're just looking at me like, I need to hear more of this. And why is that? I don't think they think that Christians think that supernatural things make sense. I guess that's what it is. 
And when when a Christian says this makes sense to them, that automatically is to them saying, you think that this is logical. And then that's when they want to know more. And that's when we have a conversation. And I can promise you, over the last, you know, five, ten years, as I've been walking on this journey of trying to understand how to reach somebody who doesn't even want to hear Bible uh, verses and don't want to talk about the... the um, Trinity or the divinity of Jesus or anything like that. And we just have to start with something that makes sense to them. There's ways that we've been able to do this. And there's a great apologist out there that you can follow that really help sort of give this ability to be able to speak outside of the Bible because God's given us common sense. He's given us logic. But this statement here, I sincerely hope you're either illiterate or seven years old, really tells me that this person has not read the Bible. And if they have, They've only read it from a subjective viewpoint and not an objective one. They've not tried to be that true scientist, so to speak, to where I am doing a thought experiment and I'm going to be objective about it. and Whatever truth comes my way, I'm going to accept it because it's truth. Rather than I'm going to read this and I'm going to twist this, I'm going to change this because I have my opinion and my opinion's right because my opinion is my truth. And so to this person... The truth to them is, their opinion is Christianity is not logical. It doesn't make sense. And I don't know that they've actually been challenged with this. To think as an atheist, I mean, very honestly, there's very few atheists out there because it's really hard to say if you're an atheist, you believe there is no God. That's a, that's a pretty big statement. That's sort of saying, it's implying you know everything. You know there's no God. It's like saying... Uh, science has proven that there's no afterlife. How? Explain that to me. Well, when the brain's dead, it's dead, and that's it. Well, what's to say that the soul, oh, there is no soul. So how do I make choices again? Oh, you don't make choices. But you made choices. Well, yeah. Well, and you see how this goes? Like, you just start falling in a line of questioning, and you get people to real quick either start to just deny the truth and start to just make up reasons or deflect, or they'll actually go, hmm, all right, you got me on a couple of those things. I'm going to have to think about that and get back to you. Uh, That's awesome. That's a great start. Christianity, you got to get into the Bible. You got to get into God's God's knowledge is, is where we get logic from, where we get reasoning from. It's where our brains were. It's who created our brain to do these things, to be as smart as the smartest person's ever been. To, to have thought experiments and, and um, just to be able to ponder life itself. We get that from God. We have that desire from him. So, no, you're not illiterate and you're not, not the brain of a seven-year-old. You're a smart person. Get into God's word so you can have confidence to believe. You don't have to check your brain at the door. And you can go in full of confidence and fight Satan because that's who you're really fighting. Not the person in front of you. But look, I, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. We are going to do another episode next week. So I hope that you're going to join us again. Like, follow, share, comment, whatever questions you got. Let's have a conversation. See you guys next time. God bless.